0: Chapter 22 of Carpenter's World Travels, Alaska, Our Northern Wonderland, by Frank Carpenter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Betty B. Chapter 22. From Fort Gibbon to the Sea. Today, after steaming down the Tanana River for 275 miles from Fairbanks, I am once more on the mighty Yukon, this time on my way to Bering Sea and Nome. For the last two months I have been traveling on this great river and its tributaries. The section where I now am is known as the Lower Yukon, and is about 800 miles long, or about one-third the length of the main stream. Though it drains thousands of square miles, the Lower Yukon Basin numbers its population. I venture by the hundreds. Going down river, we have now and then passed an Indian village and stopped at several towns which form the river ports for gold mines. One of the chief of these latter is Ruby, 175 miles below Fort Gibbon. Ten years ago, this was the scene of a stampede when gold was discovered on Ruby Creek. It is still the most important settlement on this part of the river, with its log and sheet iron buildings so jumbled together that they look as if they had been pitched out of the sky and allowed to lie as they fell. The people are supported by the gold mines, about some of the houses are gardens, and there are two hot houses noted for their fine vegetables. The proprietor of one of these, who boarded our steamer for Nome, had as a sample of his products a cucumber eighteen inches long. He said that was only a small one. A little below Ruby, we passed the mouth of the Koyukuk River, which is navigable for more than five hundred miles north of where it flows into the Yukon. Its rich mining camps are reached by small steamers. A few miles beyond the mouth of the Koyukuk, we stopped at Nulato. This is an Indian village, one of the oldest trading posts on the Yukon. It was established by the Russians when Van Buren was president, and at about the time that Tyler entered the White House, it was taken over by the Russian American Company and became the chief market for the furs of this part of Alaska. The nulato of today is interesting chiefly because of its Indian cemetery. Our boat tied up right under it so that we had a good view of the native monuments on the steep hill above us. Scores of little yellow, blue, red, green, and white kennel-like houses were scattered along the top of the hill, the homes of the ghosts of the departed, into which the Indians now and then put food for the spirits. Above each house was a cross, showing how Christianity is combined with the native superstitions on the roofs of the graves were laid many mirrors which flashed in the sun as well as such belongings of the dead as guns snowshoes bags of tobacco and other treasures it must have been a tedious business to get the bodies up to that lofty perch yet to this day i am told canoes sometimes arrive with the remains of indians who have asked to be buried there the natives of nulato are dirty and their houses are not as well-kept as those of the Upper Yukon Tribes. The squaws object to having their pictures taken, and when I pointed my camera at some of them, they wrapped their shawls around their heads and threw themselves down on the ground. The next town below Nulato is Kaltag, the starting point for a winter trail across to Unalalik, which shortens the way to Nome by 500 miles. To the coast by this portage, it is some 80 or 90 miles, while by the river it is 600. Kaltag is a trading post and a government telegraph station. It also has a wireless tower, which was erected by private parties to maintain communication with the Iditarod gold fields. While our steamer took on fuel oil, I set out on a short tramp into the country, passing through the village of a dozen one-story cabins, all fastened with padlocks because the Indian owners had gone off for a feast, I found myself in a virgin wilderness. The ground was covered with moss and spotted with stunted spruce trees and bushes loaded with blueberries, cranberries, and squawberries. The moss was so deep that I seemed to be treading on a feather bed. Everywhere I went, my feet sank into the ankles. The moss felt cold, and pulling some up, I found the bed of perpetual ice just below. The matted roots were heavy with moisture, though bare of soil. On this walk I had my first experience with the Alaska mosquitoes. To my surprise, these pests were not fierce, and their bites not as severe as those of the New Jersey species. Though I had neither gloves nor head net, I suffered no great discomfort. This, I am told, is very unusual, as generally the mosquitoes are almost unbearable. They come in May and June, shortly after the breaking of the ice. At that time, Everyone who goes through the country must wear a head net and have his hands protected by gloves. It is best to wear boots, for the mosquitoes bore their way through the eyelet holes in one's shoes, and their bites raise great buttons of flesh on each side of the tongue. I have heard of men being killed by the mosquitoes, and they say the horses and other animals go almost crazy from the bites if they are left out in the woods. Leaving Kaltaq, The Yukon flows almost straight south for a distance of 150 miles or more to the Holy Cross Mission, near which the Inoko River comes in. The Inoko gives access to the gold fields known as the Iditarod. The camp is reached by sailing up the Inoko to Dykeman at the head of navigation of the Iditarod River, a branch of the Inoko. The distance is about 350 miles, and from there to the camp is 75 miles farther. In two years after its discovery, the mines of the Iditarod district had yielded $6 million worth of gold. A single claim has produced $40,000 worth of gold a week throughout a season. Many of the claims have been bonded or bought by the Guggenheims, who are now operating large dredges there. Between Kaltag and the Holy Cross Mission in Anvik, an Indian settlement with a Russian church, and still farther down the river in Andriovsky, established by the Russians in 1853. Andryovsky is now a little trading station on the banks of the Yukon with a great oil tank at which the steamers stopped to take fuel. The town is populated almost entirely by Eskimos, about the only whites being the storekeepers. From Andreevsky, the Yukon widens until it is soon three miles from one bank to the other. Then it branches out into wide channels each leading to the sea. Its many mouths form a great fan-like delta 100 miles wide. In flood time, the whole country is under water. Islands grow up in a night, and new sandbars are sighted every voyage. In places, the stream is so wide that one can see little except a vast expanse of yellow water rimmed by the sapphire sky. Close to the shore grows grass as green as that of Holland, and the boat seems to be moving through one vast pasture. The government has done little to improve the navigation of the Yukon. The only lights on this mighty stream, with its winding course, its scores of tributaries, and its thousands of shifting sandbars and islands, are where the river flows into the ocean. Some of the captains put up their own marks to aid them in subsequent voyages. As we passed through the delta, the captain of our steamer showed me a barrel, in the middle of a large sandbar. The sandbar was under water during the last trip, when he had anchored the barrel there to locate it. The captains all keep records of each trip, noting the changes and handing their sketches over to the captains following them, up or downstream. End of chapter 22